0: Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're all right and hope you can hear me. You know the usual paranoia. I think that you can't hear me. I think the signal's terrible already, and so I end up talking like this for the first few minutes until you tell me everything's okay in the comments because I'm just that needy. Hope you had a good weekend and uh, hope you're ready for some more chewing it over. Really interested in this topic today, and it was inspired by Martin Billings, a a man who I've not met yet, uh, but someone I've interacted with online over the years, I consider him and his Twitter account to be one of my favorite sort of jobbing clinician accounts that really reflects on the trials and tribulations of MSK practice. I put him in a similar category to people like Liz Jen, Adam Dobson, Ellie Tipney. I just think they're just fascinating and interesting people who are bravely willing to share all the Us and ours of MSK practice. And they've informed me and my instincts for many years. So um, Martin, as he often does, asked the question of, of social media which I imagine and he maybe he'll be able to tell us if he's tuning in. Um, I'm sorry. It's short notice. So such short notice, I couldn't get him on the show. Maybe Martin, if you can join me at a later date to talk this through, it'd be great to know what's underneath your question because there may well be some infrastructure things that he's changing. But the question that he asked, I'm going to, I haven't got the tweet in front of me, but he's basically asking us to what, what protected learning time you have for CPD um, and he was uh, asking maybe what, what percentage that might be, I think, or, or that was one of the answers that came. Um, because it's something we'd given a lot of thought to, and was part of the MSK Reform Manifesto. For those that don't know, MSK Reform is our um, our think tank. It's a non profit which is designed to reform MSK practice, as the name describes it. And as part of the manifesto for reform that was published last year, we actually made that one of our policies: would be to try and get actually encoded into into uh, working contracts at least 5% protected learning time um, which is actually half of that of what GPs are afforded within their contracts um and so as a stand as part of the standard contract of course you know each individual one in practice could could vary but in terms of what you get as part of the uh, GPs royal college is is actually by the standard contract is actually 10% of of uh, pro rata hours so want to talk to you today uh, about that and uh, as i very like to start with a question which can be martins in that you know what what do you currently have but also what i wanted to ask you is a bit above that and i'll explain why i think that there's something that that helps us we'll call it philosophically if you want but what what's a, a prior to that is Whose responsibility is it to stay up to date, which is what CPD would be, or to educate yourself alongside the actual job in work that you're doing? Um, and we'll talk about formats of it, we'll talk about quality control, et cetera. But question I want to ask you guys is whose responsibility is it? Um, and, you know, an awful well, you're not going to give me an answer that is one person or one stakeholder group or category, but it's like what? what what is your take on who is primarily responsible is it the individual clinician is it the the institution of which they work um is it the governing bodies of which then mandate those sorts of things um is it the regulators that that might then be responsible if they're going to be asking for that as a as a standard you know um is it that it should be up to them to influence how that is done yeah is is it something that should always be done in someone's own time is it that it should only be done in work time like uh, as part of a work to rule order I don't know I've got my opinions of course as ever Um, and I've given a lot of thought to this as part of the MSKR team especially um, within the team of associate directors we gave this a lot of thought but I want to know your take before I go off on one about that, especially those that are tuning in live. But even after the fact, what are your what are your thoughts on it? Who's responsible for that? And also, what's your current? You, know, I want you to help Martin with his question. What is a uh, people's current um, time that they afford to CPD, and is it protected by employers? So, yeah, thanks for tuning in. And it sounds like the uh, comments I'm getting are suggesting that. The sound is fine, et cetera, which is good. And the network seems stable. So let me give you a, a few a few takes on the matter from me. One thing I, I end up talking about with this and why uh, MSKR was sort of coined under the, the three R's originally, which were reasoning, responsibility and reform, was... The responsibility piece ends up being where my bias is, admittedly, uh, across the board, whereby I see a distributed responsibility model across most things. Um, Responsibility, another word for it, sometimes being blame if something goes amiss, goes awry, sorry. Um, And so responsibility, distributed responsibility to me means that that there are links in a chain for that. So... CPD and, say, staying up to date with current practice, be that evidence uh, of all different flavors, but also just having an opportunity to learn, uh, not just exper- uh, experientially by, by doing, but also by being able to absorb, say, CPD materials, be that in any format, written audio through podcasting, watching something like this, if, if you consider it CPD, but just generally speaking, being able to sort of think in the direction of, of reading, say, journal articles, whatever it might be, going on courses, conferences. Um, I see that as being something that is a responsibility that is quite declared uh, to individuals. You know, it's something that we sign a, we sign a register as professionals. Most, you know, MSK professions have this way, you sign a register in which you're declaring yourself to a certain amount of remaining up to date. And let's not forget that the heart of that is by staying current for safety and quality grounds for the best interests of patients of which we're trying to care for and and aspire to help them uh, recover. Um, and so it is important and imperative that we sort of stay up to date and to to, to move past some archaic uh, and, and dogmas and, and things like that, that that otherwise, if you weren't to make progress post-registration, then that's a concern. And so you said, you, so you signed a register against that in the physio's case, it's the HCPC. And so there is a responsibility that is inherent to the individual clinician. That's the first point. But then it doesn't take much for you to realize that if that clinician is Expected to do that only in their own time, therefore unpaid, and that the benef- one of the beneficiaries of them doing so is their employer, um, for various reasons through service improvements as well as then efficiencies. Then um, that's something that feels inherently unfair, and so there is an argument then that. Um, the bare minimum would, would be done, and understandably so, if it's not something that is accounted for or p- appropriately integrated within someone's service spec or where they work. So there is an employer's responsibility to some extent to afford some time for CPD or opportunity to at least think um, between patients or what have you, or to have these, uh, these opportunities to, to learn whilst currently well, being paid for it, for want of a better term, but also just being able to integrate it within the day job. Now, should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway that 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 is something that defined narrowly as a responsibility is probably missing some of the really interesting points of it because the employer might feel like they they uh, they you know for, they can afford the time and nothing else, but the benefits are far beyond the responsibility piece. You know, it's something that is inherently, to my to my eye, a, a really sensible thing for them to do and for service managers to do. Is that? By integrating someone's CPD or providing structures, projects, um, direction to their CPD and learning, that's going to be of a a larger net benefit to that service or department and therefore the patients of which you serve. And the context specificity and even some of the local cultural variables that we talked about with Jackie last week, for example, that's the way that you lace that learning in uh, to the to the day job and therefore to the department, to the service, to the trust, you know, to that community. Um, to me, it just makes sense to, to integrate those things. And so we're we're looking at these levels and thinking that individual clinician. You've then got your, um, you've got your service of which that might, that person might be employed. Have got some responsibilities. In this case, and this is what Martin was speaking to, is to afford at the very least seem to afford the time for that to be integrated within their. It's a prerequisite of their job, and this is what we're going to come to in terms of why. It's something that people, some unscrupulous managers and, and employers, I imagine, will try to, to hold their hands off their responsibilities here, apart from for things basic low-hanging fruit like mandatory training, et cetera, and think that, well, it's up to us. You know, we can add it as a perk, and if people vote with their feet and they don't like the fact that we don't have those perks to pay for study leave and whatever, pay for courses and study leave, et cetera, then so be it. They might vote with their feet and move elsewhere, but we're not responsible for it. That's a perk. The bit that they overlook is that often in their in their working contracts, there is an imperative to stay up to date and to be measured against evidence. Now, admittedly, at a governance level, that is often a paper exercise, and I'll get into that, where let's imagine just on an NHS level, right, you've got these knowledge and skills framework gateways. It might not even still be called that, but essentially you've got these sort of progressing through pay scales uh, on milestones, say you're within a pay band, then typically if done properly, you're meant to be appraised against those things. And you'll notice that throughout it, it's about staying up to date, demonstrating progress, moving with both evidence and, and uh, you know, in this case, evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence local to that service. And it's seen that done properly, you'd be appraised against progress. So you paid, your pay is predicated on that learning. And it's clear from when you look at those things that it's not suggesting that that's just going to emerge through time, mileage, just seeing patients. Because you need to be afforded time to actually do some of the other things, and and even there's some some levels in which you're sort of expected to then comply with certain things like oh, your audit skills, et cetera. And so you think about that and think about if if your employer is supposedly then paying you against progress, but then not affording you the sort of time and opportunity to progress. And that's why I'm describing it as a responsibility. It's not just me sort of inferring that. It's something that when I've given a thought to it, that seems central to it. So, you then you then just at that level i don't think it stops there i think there's a responsibility then for when it's done, it's something that, you know, done and, and people are aspiring to be better clinicians. It's rewarding in many ways for patients, for services, for efficiency, for, for that that clinician, of course, then can better themselves. I think ethically it's good to aspire to be to better yourself. However, there's also then, I think, a responsibility for, say, professional bodies and or regulators in this instance to then try to raise standards uniformly across, say, professions or, or industries. If we think about the wider MSK front. Whereby then to be respected, and for that style of healthcare and rehabilitation centred healthcare that I promote to be uh, more robust, to decrease the unwarranted variation by education, and then to raise standards in a way that so society then associates us more strongly with sensible and uh, and, and progressive educa- uh, progressive care delivery, right? And they sort of aspire to the model of which we we're, we're talking about. And you think about again i'm speaking in sort of nebulous terms here in terms of raising standards but it's like the the regulators and professional bodies stand to gain and also if they are expecting not just safety standards but then also quality standards with regards to evidence-based progress then w- they, they're not the ones that can necessarily mandate it, but they're the ones that could really have a responsibility for influencing that as an expectation for employers, for also for their registrants and members and clinicians, is that, again, that responsibility for them to sort of lay out some some rules and regulations, not really, that's the wrong term, um, isn't it, standards of which to aspire to, even if it's soft power, even if it's not something that they've got the clout to actually mandate, then that, for me, I think there's a responsibility both ethically and practically for them to do that. And also for members, membership bodies, it's up to the members in them to to then say that this is what we want in order to assist our conversation. So if say, Martin's taking this up as part of a service development and service spec development, then for him to have those sorts of things uh, to lean on, I think you know, would be valuable uh, for the reasons I've just mentioned. And then you can go beyond that, of course, as to why, as a society, we might want to aspire to that, as uh, for, for to have a to have a professional class in this direction, aspiring to quality improvement that is accounted for in their job roles in order for them to not be needing to spend what saddles like me do, which is sort of 10, at least, you know, 10 to 20 hours a a week, uh, aspiring in that direction across my career outside of work time, because there are other net benefits to what I could be doing. Societally and socially, and, and and getting a better work-life balance. If I wasn't having to always do that uh, outside of my own time, and then there's always people that like me, infovos that are going to do more. Uh, but generally speaking, if it was more accounted for in the in the day job, then you're going to be less likely to be prone to burnout, etc. Arguably, um, and there's some evidence for that uh, that the integrating and and getting a better separation in work and life, even though it's sort of a passion project for me and many. There is argument then socially in such a way that that might influence politics and be a responsibility for what sort of society we want to create. And obviously I'm getting a bit more vague now, but that distribution of responsibility for me is important. Now, when we've then reflected on these these variables as as um, as people within MSKR uh, when we we're building the manifesto for reform, for example, um, it's exciting. We've got an MSKR meeting tonight with the associate directors, and we've had a little bit of a lull for various reasons. And so it's quite cool to be sort of re, re, re uh, incentivizing some of our priority policies, et cetera. But so it's been, I've been thinking in this direction, putting a presentation together for tonight. Um, and one of the things that I when I remember as thinking about on this is that what is the appropriate level? And MSKR as a policy says that a minimum of 5% of your pro rata working hours should be protected for CPD and and then there are several organizations that have then been taking us up on that I mean soft power it's a think tank that can float policy and people can say no thank you uh, interestingly we've had some uh, when we've challenged uh, a few organizations on would you get on board with this you know we've tested market research tested those policies against various different organizations I recall uh, for example the CSP felt it was um, something that they wouldn't get on board with and their rationale was that that if there was an organization out there uh, they weren't able to provide who but if there was an organization out there giving more than five percent then that would actually that you know if said there's an organization giving ten percent they would read that policy and therefore adjust it to the lowest common denominator because we were advocating for it um we were making the case that uh, across the board, you know, it's certainly not something that's job contracted at five percent. Even amongst departments, etc., that are offering five percent plus, it's not something that's then typically protected in a in a job contract sort of way. And so we were in a situation where we felt that that would uh, be offering a suggested raise of that uh, time and, and making the the argument for that protected time. And unfortunately, yeah, they they were. You know it was it was something that you know i'm going to even pretend that, that i can think, think that that's even close to a decent argument but admittedly you know that was one of the things that we heard from them on and i can understand that um if i was to give it some uh you know give it the time of day as an argument then i can i can think that there is precedent on a uh union level that you'd you'd then make sure that you weren't clumsy enough with your language to then potentially because you're trying to raise one thing you don't get people bringing it down you, you classically you think about that with sort of a quality based wage activism. There's this argument that if you try and set a standard uh, within an industry to try and raise um, a a, a wage level up on a particular skill set, then there are unscrupulous employers that may then look at people that were a few quid over that and then bring them down as a way of marrying and balancing the books. For me, a, a foreign—that's a foreign argument to what we're describing with protected learning time amongst the professional class, especially in the NHS, for example, which would be a big breakthrough. You know, so you know, for me, I'm not going to pretend I can give that that argument much time a day, and and we didn't get engaged on it very thoroughly. But it's just one thing, just to account for the fact that we're, as a think tank, promoting that thoughtfully, um, and have heard. Some people um, moving that forward as employers and, and practices and services. And then, yeah, admittedly, it's something that hasn't then had a massive sort of fanfare across other um organizations because there are contentions there um and, and as i say it's been it's been short lived engagement on that but it's just the sort of thing i thought i'd share with you as to why you may have heard uh, a lack of fanfare around that they're into unified uh, there isn't a unified agreement with even something like that um uh, which is interesting so i'm interested in the um chat function i'm just opening it back up sorry i closed that off just so that i can then uh, play my head and not get too distracted but let's have a little look at some of the comments that are coming in. Matthew Wyatt has said that clinic, clinicians accountable, employers responsible and regulators check compliance. Yeah that's a lovely way of putting it and probably a little bit briefer than I just did <laughs> going off on one for 10 minutes so thank you for that Matthew. Lucy Cocker, hi Lucy, she said CPD is a requirement for HCPC registration, I do feel organisations should support, but there is a balance with individuals also taking responsibility for their own learning, absolutely Lucy, yeah, and uh, thanks for tuning in, and I I hope you can understand that that completely overlaps with the agreement and of what I was saying, where I do see that for fundamentally, on a measurability level, you know, you are in a situation where you're signing a register, and to be honestly aspiring to bit progress, and then the responsibility, admittedly, ends up sort of lying in the in the individual, but it's unfair for it to only be there, uh, which is why I think we end up with these more interesting questions about what could be protected in job contracts and what we could aspire to as a professional class. Sam, I'm going to mispronounce your surname here. Sorry, Sam. Sam Bor- Borgwine? Borg, Borg, yeah, probably. How do we incentivize anything that isn't patient contact time when MSK contracts don't support it? How do incentivize anything that isn't patient contact time when msk contracts don't support it yeah i mean uh, this this that's a topic in itself someone we can talk about that on another show really but i i would say in this instance it's it's very narrow-minded to infer that if you it's going to be an efficient service that's just got a number of therapists that then see a number of patients and that and, and anything outside of that is waste that's actually um yeah we can present you and uh, get in touch if you want the we've got some great evidence to the effect that that is not how you efficiently run a a service Um, not least let's just imagine that happening over a period of time the inevitable burnout that occurs in that instance the the absenteeism and then nominal presenteeism of of inefficiency of those that are present means that that does not pay any dividends outside a very narrow tested few weeks um in a sample Um, so I can understand what you're meaning on an empirical level, but we're dealing with humans um, on both sides of this, both in terms of patients as well as then therapists, as well as then managers, so humans all over the place uh, that aren't then machines that would then, uh, would then make that argument come good. Now, I doubt, <laughs> maybe you are, Sam, maybe you're making that case and you feel like actually that's the, the right thing. Um, but we, uh, we can talk about that. In, uh, I'd love to get into that another time but as a as a general rule, both in terms of what the data suggests as well as what is sensible. Sensible employment theory, for want of a better term, is that, you know, the the way in which your uh, contracts are measured, and sometimes, yeah, you do need to go to clinic uh, commissioners, and say, you know, I don't know if you're expecting to, to these people to be robots or what have you. And sometimes that these uh, KPIs and um, all the other things, service level agreements, and numbers are, are associated to that are, are clumsily made in such a way that they are expecting that unit of output per unit of employee. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, that's definitely short-sighted and, and something that we make the argument by demonstrating. Both in terms of the data as well as the, I don't know. I guess I'm overusing the term, but it's a philosophical argument around what it is you're trying to achieve, the output and the quality um, that you would get, um, especially over a, a drawn-out period of time. Would you would get a poor quality output from that sort of um, that sort of behaviour, where you're just trying to put put cogs in the machine um anna hi anna Anna Maria Armacieri. for therapists under contract it's much easier to apply protected cpd time how could we translate across the principle over to private practice shall we put it as kpi i think in private practice terms i think the same sort of things i was just talking about then in answer to to sam is that you know fundamentally that occur- occurs across the board really public and private and charity sectors independent sectors is that i think done properly with the right balance then you're actually getting a a quality and quantity output that is more efficient and you can test that you can measure that is that by protecting a certain period of time um then you're going to have this you're going to at least in the short term you would immediately see that though that is time that they would otherwise be able to see patients yeah that's obvious I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that as a fact factual reality but the way in which that would then fit into uh sensor rewards sensor camaraderie the way in which you have got them more interaction between teams you've got then service improvements which would help efficiencies producing resources and handouts that can help with self management that might alter uh, in a positive way the uh the referral rates uh, in every which way for me that bleeds into private practice in in a, in a great way um, and and the the way in which that is also going to help with retention. The inefficiencies that come from recruitment uh, across across sectors right now is is fascinating. And so you think about the uh, way in which that might better incentivize and create a community amongst your practice, regardless again, of sector, I think that's the it's actually really low hanging fruit, I would say, but I mean, I am a digital educator and someone that thinks in this direction a lot, and so my bias is that given the right opportunity, to learn on the job and, and see that translated and see it not being detached not being someone that's learning something and then practicing another thing that doesn't feel well integrated or you know people you know it's a bit of a cliche now I'd say even in business or in or in sort of leadership circles but trying to get people to strive to a sense of purpose is sort of what we know the power of why being the classic book in that direction but there's plenty of work that's been done in that sense that, that if you've got someone that's working under clo- as close to their sense of personal purpose as possible then you're going to get a mo- much more efficient and happy worker i think that your your numbers then come uh you've got the quality brings the quantity given the right appropriate time frame. so that's where i see it and I'm, i think it's independent of, of sector Paula has said inequality of protected time within healthcare. Uh, she's then put a hyphen. I don't know if she's like leaving me in suspense there as to whether there's more to come, but there is. I agree, Paula. There's an inequality of protected time within healthcare, uh, across professions as well as a few other a few other things. Um, but I definitely would um, I would say in this instance that you know you, how we how we push back against that is is a fascinating one and one that obviously we're in the thick of the fight with uh, as MSK Up you in know, a. Yeah, funny year <laughs> you'll have heard you'd have heard more of us especially on the ground and i think that's one of the things for us to reflect on and i will share that publicly um now and, and beyond really is that the big plan that we had for 2020 as mskr was so face-to-face heavy it's untrue uh, which is a shame because we could easily have i wish i'd have had a more battle, you know, in hindsight if i'd anticipated the pandemic you'd definitely be um it had been more balanced in terms of how it's communicated but we had this sort of road show that was planned we also had several events that we were going to spend money having either stands or a presence at or uh, events after in the evenings in the pubs of the local conferences and stuff so we had this really big ground game and so let's imagine this policy which one of the prioritized ones within the governance chapter i think um well, it might have been in the excellence sorry but those sorts of uh, elements we would have been making a big song and dance about and it's been harder for us to to cut through that but never fear we have uh, we have uh, many plans up our sleeves especially as we get back to some level of Uh, both new and old normal then you'll be hearing more about from us in that direction and we've got some tricks up our sleeve there but as a general rule how we advocate for it is something that is complex you know it's something you've got to make a persuasive case in order for it to not completely compromise the business models of individual services or practices you know if you're too clumsy with that and you just be a fist-shaking activist that's then just inferring that that should be you know cpd is a human right how dare you you know overnight i want 10 percent. never mind 5 percent um i want i want time protected you know you're able to do that if you're then saying here's a my here's a my individual demands and therefore if um if i don't get that i'll walk then they're in a situation where of course that's how you can vote with your feet and, and move elsewhere with your employment right you you're selling your labor uh, but in terms of the way in which it might be more maturely negotiated is that you're then in a situation where you demonstrate the benefits across the different stakeholder groups. And that's the layers to that responsibility that I was talking about, but not just the responsibility, but the net gains, the gains actually increase. I think, you know, the individual gains, the individual person. And then uh, I think, uh, I think you've got then this, this layered approach. I think you actually benefit this, the service benefits from the net gains and then the the trust and then the, you know, beyond, and I'd even say, as far as to say that we get measured. We're getting measured by, say, regulators and, and professional bodies uh, in a more accurate fashion, and they would they benefit from the fact that you've got this uniform raising of standards and and appropriate self regulation that's occurring. Think about the uh, siloed. One of the problems we've got at the moment is like siloed working if you bring that together and create these uh, these even independent private practices are going to need to start linking more and to create more camaraderie in local communities in such a way that then you've got this sense that the the, the tide rises all ships so i think the, the benefits uh actually scale up as you go up that responsibility curve in terms of groups uh beyond the individual lucy cocker Hi uh, Lucy she then said have you had any commissioner responses to five percent protected time yeah we had commissioner consults within the actual development of the manifesto they were supportive of it but again they were sort of suggesting that you need to make sure that you uh their big thing was that you, know, you need to not be it needs to not be a, a a clumsy thing that's then just inferred as being a subjective good for the individual clinicians that yes they'd rather see a few less patients and read a few books and as if it would be like a stuff that they're having to do in their own time that they'd bring into work and that there wouldn't be an obvious measurable gain. And so they were saying that with with the appropriate facts and figures and, and, and efficiency outputs that you'd then need to measure, then they were they were into it. And they could understand the fact that any <laughs> commissioners are particularly they bothered about those sort of numbers and bean counting and stuff. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend that. But they're also when you when we've spoken to them especially since we had some commissioners I think came to parliament when we launched the manifesto as well and I spoke to one of them and I can't pretend therefore that this is representative massive sample bias there. But I remember speaking to them and, and she was she was saying hi they they really are bothered about the fact that there's such variation across postcodes and cross services and stuff and even cross clinician so it's that you know the, the, the individual flair of clinicians and how they deliver care Um, they're not bothered about. But the fact that there's such an overwhelming difference between someone referred for back pain to one person to another, um, they understand that one of the few things that can really do that is to make a hearts and minds persuasive case on what it means to be a clinically excellent MSK physio. And education surely is a key part of that. And therefore, it needs to be found in time because you can't rely on that in people's own time because that disparity only accentuates. Again, I'm not saying that's every. Commissioner, maybe some are more short-sighted than that, but as a general rule we've had uh, we've had a fairly good response as long as it's done the right way, as long as it's not just again it's like a childish fist check, which is sometimes how things are seen if it's not well articulated and as I say, I think we're well articulated in the manifesto. Over the twelve months that have been since then, I'm not going to pretend that we've articulated it nearly as well socially as as we'd like for various reasons. You can imagine the pandemic's thrown us all off, as you can as you can think. So, uh, but we'll be back on that train. Don't you worry. Um, I'm out of time. Thank you so much uh, for those that have tuned in with the comments and and. Uh, Please do let me know if you're tuning into this after the fact, or if you've got any further thoughts on this, then do let me know. uh We can touch this another time, other shows, and Sam's points is a really good one as to incentivizing um counterintuitive variables within service development. That's one of the things and maybe I'd I'd love to get uh, my good friend and mentor, uh, Paula Deacon, on to talk about that because she's just a wonderful person in that direction, someone who's uh, done the doing there. And and so maybe we could get her on the show at some point to talk about that because um, she's she's, uh, far more experienced and actual expertise in that direction than me. But anyway, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it as ever. And I will see you tomorrow. And if I remember where my buttons are, Goodbye for me.